0: Today's sermon text is from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that he had, she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram,
1: The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my, wi- uh, my, wi- my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram.
2: Thank you so much, Semkeys, for reading scripture this morning. It's good to be together. Hello, my name is Ron, and I have the privilege of sharing the word with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who have heard me preach before, I'm sorry. Uh, I was able to sneak my name into the, into the roster, and you're stuck with me today. I, uh, I love this passage, um, and I look forward to sharing it with you uh, so much here that uh, speaks to the reality of our lives, my life in particular, and I, I hope it speaks to your life as well. One of the things that I, I love about Scripture uh, that makes it more authentic for me is that it doesn't candy coat anything. It shows how people are, warts and all. Uh, for someone like Abraham, you, you see uh, his, the pinnacles of his faith, his success, and you see the pitfalls of his personality. Uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Chris Battle uh, brought us through Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness that God would give him a son, matter of fact, many, many descendants. And Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then God enters into a covenant. He cuts a covenant with Abraham. This chapter is a low point in Abraham's life. It's, It's a pitfall matter of fact, it is probably one of the the largest pitfalls in his life, and it has lasting implications even to this very day. And so I want to look at it with you, uh, both the highlights of his life and the pitfalls of his life. I've entitled the message this morning, uh, Short-Circuiting Faith When You Want to Give God a Hand, or When Faith Gives God a Hand. So in that context, I want to start with a true confession. Um, I have a problem. Now, some of you are saying, finally, the therapy is working with him, Uh, but it's true. I have a problem, and my problem is simply this. I hate to wait. I hate it. Uh, I hate waiting almost as much as I hate country music. I know, right? And almost as much as I hate potlucks, which I hate more than waiting, but I do hate them pretty equally, Uh, I'm pretty sure in hell that's all you do is listen to country music and wait for people to serve you the potluck. But I'm not planning on figuring that one out. See, I hate to wait. How about you? Do you like waiting? Uh, Let me give you a sense of how much I hate waiting. Um, I have this little card that I got from the government. It's called a Nexus card. Uh, Do any of you have that card? It is my favorite. It's Get Out of Line Free. Uh, And and I love my Nexus card because uh, when I go to the border, if I want to go to the States, all I do is drive up, flash my card, and they wave me through as long as I can say Trump, Trump, Trump three times. I get through the border. It's amazing. Usually it works that way. It's fantastic. The other day, though, as I was heading down to Package Express, which is a place in, in, uh, uh, where is that, Sumas, Uh, I came to the border lineup. It was the um, Nexus line was clear all the way through, and there were a mass, massive cars, all the people who only have passports and don't have Nexus, right? I call them the putzes with passports, and there they were in line. Now, those of you who only have passports, I'm sorry, but it is true. <laughs> and I got to zip past every one of those people and get right up to the Nexus line as I'm ready to go zip across the border and say, Trump, 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 all of a sudden, the guy in the booth steps out and puts a cone in front. What was he thinking? I I had to wait. I had to stop there. And as I stopped, I watched all the Pazos with passports go through. I had to wait a whopping five minutes. Five minutes. I know, right? It was terrible. And then when I got up there, he decided he was going to uh, um, interrogate me. And I I was at the booth for another five minutes. All these putzes with passports are flying through, and me with my magic nexus card, I'm waiting. I am stuck, stuck there. I hate to wait. And I'm guessing that most of you do as well. This passage is a passage about Abram and Sarai who hate to wait. Uh, they find that waiting causes their faith to short-circuit, uh, and they get themselves into a dilemma. So this morning I want to look at three aspects of this passage with you uh, and and we'll get through them hopefully we'll get through them all Uh, first service the clock went way too quickly so here we go here's the three things I want to look at the challenge of waiting for God the temptation to help God out or short-circuit your faith and the conviction that God knows those are the three things I want to look at with you Are, are we good to go Okay, let's have some fun. The challenge of waiting for God, verses 1 and 2. Now, let me read it to you again, and I'll read passages of Fairmount this morning because I, I want you to hear. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant who was named Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. I'll leave it there for for the start. Here's what I've come to discover about how life is for us. We live in an instant gratification society, don't we? We like to get what we want right away. We want it now. We expect to have our wishes fulfilled immediately. I mean, communications can be around the world, and it's that instant. Uh, This week was communicating with John and Bonnie Esau in Thailand, and it was instant communication. Um, sometimes we, we want to order stuff from across the country. Have you ever used like Amazon to order stuff? There's this magic thing called Amazon Prime, which guarantees that the moment you type in your order, it appears at your doorstep. It's fast, fascinating. Actually, not quite that fast, but sometimes if you order before three o'clock, it'll arrive the next day. that's what they tell you. I want to tell you, they're lying to you. That's not what happened. Once I had to wait a full 48 hours. It's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, they promised 24. I had to wait 48. I wasted 24 hours of my life waiting for Amazon Prime. Uh, we, we like things like Skip the Dishes or or the mobile Starbucks app, which by the way, I use this morning. It's the most amazing thing. You don't even have to tell them what you want. You punch it in, you drive up, you pick it up, and you're gone. So good. I get what I want. Uh, some of us, uh, like instant. we like instant tellers, and there's, there's, there's Facebook. And, I mean, what, what used to take weeks or months or even years to happen now happens in real time and what I've come to discover as I've read this passage that that if there was ever a time when waiting was a foreign exercise it is now we're a society and we're a people I'm an individual who does not like to wait patience is not in our vocabulary it's a total waste of time I told you about me crossing the border. Let me tell you how my my time was wasted all the more by a woman who didn't understand that I have a life. Uh, I I got to Package Express, and there in line were three other people ahead of me. Can you imagine how long I had to wait? It was terrible. There's a lady in front of me. She was obviously agitated, uh, and she got up to the teller, and and she said, look, uh, my parcel is here. I want to pick it up. And the lady said, hey, what's your number? And she gave her number, and the lady looked it up in the computer, and, and it actually said, uh, no, it's not here yet. And the lady got quite agitated. She said, no, actually, I got an email from FedEx that says my parcel was delivered. Where is my parcel? Look it up again. So she typed it in again and said, no, your parcel's not here yet. Well, the lady then said, well, where is my parcel? FedEx says it's here. You say it's not she said, well, it could be in our holding bay. we just received a shipment, but we won't get to the end of the day. She said, you're wasting my day. See, we're, we're people who don't like to wait, right? I mean, on top of it, not only did she waste her day, she wasted my time as well. It was horrible. See, here's the thing about not liking to wait, though, is it causes a problem in relationship to faith, because faith, by nature, implies we'll wait is that great? Not so much. By definition, faith requires waiting. Listen to Hebrews 11, chapter, or 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things we hope for. We haven't got it yet. We're hoping for it. And the conviction of things not seen. We wait. There's this interesting and disturbing fact that if you do a word study, you'll find that wait or waiting or waits is one of the most recurring words in Scripture in relationship to faith. Isn't that nice? This poses a problem for us, for me at least. And it posed a problem for Abram and Sarai, because they determined they were going to fix it. Because God in His sovereignty often calls us to wait, and they weren't willing. Sometimes we're not true. See, the truth is this, that waiting reveals things about our lives that nothing else will. And if you don't believe me, try waiting in a restaurant. Have you ever waited in a restaurant? Right, one of two things will happen. If you, and by the way, they're called waiters or waitresses. We say servers now. But their job is to wait on me. Right, you sit down, one of two things will happen. As soon as you sit down, they'll say, are you ready to order? It's like, uh, no, go away. Or they'll never show up. Have you ever had that? It's horrible. This waiting thing is just horrible. See, the thing about waiting is it reveals something about my character, it reveals something about your character. Wait and see what happens when the people around you are caused to wait. And if you dare, evaluate yourself. See, the same is true for the journey of our faith. Faith is constantly told to wait on the promises and the person of God, and waiting tests our character, and it also tests our reason. And that's where I want to go. Here's what I discover. That in the context of Abram and Sarai waiting, their character was tested. Waiting tests our character. Look at look at it again, verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to Sarai and listened to the voice of Sarai. Now here's the thing. Uh, Scripture's a little sneaky. There's a little bit. Uh, Last week we did chapter 15, right? This week we're doing chapter 16. And it's as if like, we move from one to the next, and we get to do that. But here's the reality. Chapter 15, where God promises Abraham, and he believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Chapter 15 happens, and then it's 10 years later till chapter 16. You think they put a little footnote in there that says, you know, uh, pause or on hold. But it's been 10 years. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for God's promise for 10 years. And in the context of this promise, Sarai's identity becomes challenged. See, Sarai identifies with her shame instead of her fame. She was, after all, the wife of a patriarch, Abram, the first patriarch. She was the chosen one of God to bring about the line of salvation. She didn't understand that totally, but nonetheless, it doesn't change the facts. She interpreted her life circumstances as God's curse, rather than God's canvas to effect the miraculous. I and mean, then really, who can blame her? Ten years is a long time. Have you ever waited ten years for something? It's a long, long time. See, in Genesis 15, Abram was 75 and Sarai was 65. Faint hope clause there, maybe I'll get pregnant. In Genesis 16, Abram's 85 and Sarah's 75. She is well past childbearing years, and her womb remains empty. That's how the passage starts. In that day, society measured the value of a woman by her ability to produce an heir. I can imagine how Sarai felt, month in and month out, for ten years, producing no heir. Anticipation regularly dashed by reality. And eventually her hope fades, discouragement takes root and she starts to get a little bitter. Some of you know that feeling of wanting a child. This endless waiting, met by disappointment. Sherry and I know it all too well. Uh, when Sherry and I uh, married um, about a 1,000 years ago, I say 1,000 because he's easy to actually get the right date in there somewhere. When we married, we, we determined we were going to be the masters of our own destiny for the first number of years of marriage, three years of marriage. Uh, we, we, built a house and established ourselves and got all together, and then we were ready to have kids. Right now, we got it all together, we're good to go. And so we did what every young couple does, we did a lot of practicing to have kids. (laughs) It's a good thing. So we practiced a lot, and nothing happened. For a long time. For a whole year, nothing happened. And finally, Sherry, who's much wiser than I, said, maybe we should figure out what's going on. I said, no, we should just do it more. She was right. We went to figure it out, and we were told that there was less than a half a percent chance of us ever conceiving a child. Those ain't good odds. And so we really struggled with that. I knew Sherry would be a fantastic mom, and I thought I'd be a pretty good dad. And so we went through all the stuff that you could do back then in the ancient days when they didn't have IVF and all the stuff you can do now. You know, the basal thermometer and whatever. It was very romantic. Not. And we tried for another year. And still no children. And finally, we had the smarts to get on our knees. And Sherry and I pleaded with the Lord. I can still remember exactly where we were. On our knees, with our hands together. Saying, Lord... We think you've made a big mistake here. We'd be fantastic parents. We'd, we'd, we would really love to have a child. But if your plans are different, while we disagree, we'll submit. That's a hard prayer. was a terribly hard prayer. But it was a sincere prayer. Now, the miracle was, next month, Sherry was pregnant. Only once. We've been practicing a lot since then. But only once. And no more children. Now, Sherry continues to say, I'm not pregnant yet. And I'm like, uh, and you're not going to get pregnant, right? Because, like, you know, I'm almost a thousand years old and I don't want a child. I had trouble raising one. Death was a real option. So, <laughs> I say that to say, look, I understand how, how Sherry felt. And over time in the waiting, Sarai and Abram grew impatient. And impatience uh, was fueled by disappointment, and eventually it poisoned her character, and she became bitter. And you discover that she blames God instead of trusting and waiting on Him to accomplish what He promised. Look what she says in verse 2 Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She frames her reality in terms of her circumstances. And she discredits God because she's tired, really tired of waiting. Matter of it, she expresses her bitterness in the strongest terms possible. The word prevented literally means has held me in bondage or locked me away. Sarai feels Frustrated. And her faith is tested in the waiting. And as a result, she feels like she needs to take matters into her own hand. You discover that Sarai is an impatient woman. And often we, like Sarai, become impatient as well, believing the circumstances of our lives or the situations we find ourselves in over and above the character, the promises, the purposes, and the person of God. Don't we? See, while Abram and Sarah's situation may not be your own, many of us wrestle with similar kinds of situations. And we're ready to throw in the towel or take matters into our own hands. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in a really difficult marriage. And it seems impossible in the face of a demanding spouse. Some of you may have longed for a wayward child to find Jesus or one of your, your siblings to find Jesus, and you've seen no progress in the, in the, uh, the process. But perhaps you're single and you long for relationship and you wonder if God even cares. Maybe your health isn't going the way you had planned, and despite the best efforts and sincere prayer, it continues to decline. See, we find ourselves tested and tried as God invites us to wait, not for a resolution, but to wait for Him. And to come to the place where we understand that He is faithful, where we believe that He is able, where we're convinced that He knows best, and we know beyond a shadow of doubt that He is good. See, in the process of waiting, our faith is refined. It's refined where we come to the point where we believe in Him, not for an outcome, but because we believe in Him. Our faith is tested when we identify ourselves... When we, sorry, our faith is tested when we identify ourselves with our circumstances, our external circumstances, and we're tempted, and our character is tested when our identity is defined by what we are, not whose we are. Children of God. When I started in ministry... Um, many years ago. I did an internship in a church in Victoria, and uh, it was a small church that didn't have a lot of money and it didn't pay a big salary, And so part of our package was people would, would have us in their house for numbers of weeks at a time. It was great not. It was like potluck all the time. <laughs> Maybe that's why I hate potluck, it's possible. Anyways, in the process, I met a couple, Trevor and June, who have impacted my life more profoundly than any other couple I think I've ever met. Trevor and June were an older couple. They'd been married uh, 45 years when I met them. Um, And so 45 years earlier, they were non-believers. They'd gotten married. And uh, about a year into their marriage, June met Jesus. And when she met Jesus, she came to realize that Trevor, the man she loved, was an alcoholic. Now what do you do? And he wasn't just any kind of alcoholic. He was a raging alcoholic. And he drank every day. Remember, she would say, he would say there was not one day of their marriage where he wasn't drunk. June determined, based on some good counsel she received from her pastor, not to provide him with alcohol, but not to chastise him as well. To simply be Jesus to her husband. And so for 40 years, 40, day in, day out, with no hint of change, with much adversity, Every day, June would get on her knees and she would pray for Trevor. And in the 40th year of their marriage, by God's grace, Trevor discovered Jesus. Actually, Jesus discovered Trevor. Although he wasn't surprised, just so we're clear. Jesus knew where he was the whole time. And... There was such a transformation in Trevor's life that he determined to redeem the lost years and be a manifestation of God's love to June, so much so that they were like little kids in love. In the last 10 years, in their 50th year of marriage, Trevor died. Which one of us would be willing to be on our knees for 40 years for a lost spouse or a person who is treating us poorly? Not a good return, is it? 40 for 10? And yet, I discovered in June the mark of faithfulness in adversity. I love what Second Corinthians 4 says in this regard, 16 through 18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What a marvelous but difficult truth. Waiting also not only tests our character, it tests our reason. See, as Sarah grows older and sadder and more impatient, she feels compelled to act. She's convinced that it all depends on her. And she looks for a resolution even as she engages her own understanding. She reasons, look, I know this can't happen. I'm old. There's no way I'm going to bear a child. I better figure a way out. And what's interesting is she finds a solution in the culture of her day. Because in the culture of her day, Sarai could appoint her servant to be a surrogate and to conceive on her behalf. See, in effect, Sarah starts to reason her way through the answer. Rather than trusting God for a way through, Sarai and Abram look for a way out. And by the way, Abram is as compliant and as complicit, more complicit than Sarai. See, one of the challenges of faith is simply that. That sometimes or often, God will tell us something, but He won't give us all the information. He won't tell us all that we think we need to know to faithfully follow Him. And yet He calls us to be faithful. Sometimes He only tells us what He's going to do, and that often, in broad brushstrokes, He doesn't say how or when He's going to do it, or even why. And, And the how and the when... They become the matters of faith. God, I don't understand how, and I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust you in the process. See, God often chooses, us to, chooses to allow us to wait so that, when, so that there is little doubt that when he does move, it was him, and nothing we were able to concoct on our own. When we find ourselves in the waiting room of faith, we discover that human reason is tempted to take over and retool our faith to reframe faith to suit our experience and our reality. We're driven to doubt the promises in the person of God, and in our doubts, we act out of desperation. That's what happened with Sarah and Abram. In effect, human reason determines the measure of God's character, the measure of God's care, the measure of God's understanding, and the measure of God's ability to accomplish what he said he was going to do. We all too readily determine that we need to help God out because he can't do it on his own. And it results in a crisis of faith where we doubt God and his word and we determine to be masters of our own destiny. I love what Proverbs 3 has to say in this regard. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. See, Sarah's head tells her God needs help. And Sarah's reason engages a cultural solution to a spiritual question. She devises a scheme, a rational response to an irrational reality. Look at it again with me, verse 1 and verse uh, verse 2. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. I'm not happy with my situation. Go into my servant; it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram the putz. Well, it doesn't actually say that. Just so we're clear, but that's, a, uh, that's the uh, R V A version. Abram listened to Sarah's voice. By the way, it's the same phrase that's used when Adam listens to Eve's voice. Sarah engages her head instead of her heart, her faith. Sarah embraces an acceptable social practice in response to her plight. I wonder how often we're tempted to embrace cultural truths to accomplish our goals when God is calling us to wait and trust His plan. I hear it a lot, actually, as a pastor. It happens when an individual is desperate to have a partner and they use plenty of fish or lots of chickens, and that's one of the websites, right? I'm not sure. Anyways, when they use a a secular website or whatever else out there, and they discover a non-believer who really, really likes them, and they choose to ignore the counsel of the word that says, don't be unequally yoked. It happens with couples who want a child, and who, without considering the ramifications of in vitro fertilization, decide to press ahead, without thinking it through. By the way, I'm not saying that IVF is wrong, but I am saying it is an ethical landmine. Because it tests what you believe about life and the embryos that are fertilized. And too readily, we're willing to just ignore it. Hey, I just need to fix this. I'm not going to worry about that. They can be frozen forever. It doesn't bother me. There's just something morally wrong about that. It happens to people who choose to twist Scripture to suit their lifestyle. Couples who live together before marriage as, as believers. I understand people who don't know Jesus doing that. But as believers, saying, you know something, everyone's doing it. And it's unreasonable to expect me not to. I need to have sex. want to be clear. You won't die if you don't have sex. It'll be really long, but you won't die. See, it happens to us every day. As we journey on the pathway of faith, we're tempted to short-circuit God and adapt our faith to suit our situations. And so waiting does something marvelous. It tests our character, and it tests our reason, and it calls us to trust God, even in the waiting. Here's a second point I want to make. That faith There's this temptation to help God out. Verses 3 through 6. I'll read it once, and we'll press on. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. By the way... Where did they get the Egyptian servant? Do you know? Egypt, obviously, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. right. It's not a Norwegian servant. It's an Egyptian servant. But where did they get her? When did they get her? The last time they decided to short-circuit their faith. Back in Genesis 12, when there's a famine in the land, Moses decides to go down to Egypt, and he has this really great plan. Hey, Sarah, tell everyone you're my sister because you're pretty hot, right? Anyways, at the end of it, Pharaoh gives him all manner of slaves and livestock and whatever, he comes back rich. But it's not because he's within God's plans, because he's short circuited. So here, a mistake of the past now comes back to haunt him. Let me press on here. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong, oh, it goes on. Uh, and he went into Hagar, verse four, and she conceived and she, when she saw she had conceived, she looked with contempt, on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Another putz moments for Abraham. I don't know, I just slept with her. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, that is Hagar and she fled. See, Sarai and Abram determined to give God a hand, and in the process, they make, made a very wrong decision that has uh, implications. There's three aspects of their actions that can flag for us when we are moving out on our own and, and in danger of short-circuiting our faith. Now, I want to share them with you because they're really clear in the passage here. First of all, their actions weren't rooted in faith. They were rooted in pragmatism or expediency. They made a decision not based on what was right or what was wrong, but rather what will work. There's no sense here where they seek the Lord to say, God, it's been 10 years, what's going on? No, no, no. They can figure it out on their own. There's this clue in the passage that that is put there that wants us to understand that God actually wanted to use Sarai. See, while up to this point in Scripture, Sarai hasn't been named as the one who will give birth to a son... Every time that Sarai is mentioned up to this point, we're reminded Sarai was Abram's wife. Sarai was Abram's wife. It happens in chapter 11 a number of places. It happens in chapter 12, and now it happens again here in chapter 16. Two times in three verses we're told Sarai was Abram's wife. You get the sense that God wants us to understand something. See, Sarai is Abram's wife. He has no others. The clear inference is that she, despite her age and infertility, would be the one to bear him a son. And Sarai readily moves outside of God's plan for marriage and embraces a social custom to accomplish God's promise. The big problem here. She reframes God's truth. She allowed circumstance and reason to overrule God's truth. And she chooses the path of expediency or pragmatism. We tend to be a pragmatic society, aren't we? Do whatever it takes to get what you want. Unwanted pregnancy and abortion. And we frame it as women's rights. Unhappy marriage, get out. We frame it in terms of a soulmate. Ah, that person's just not my soulmate. Can I tell you biblically, it's a load of crap. There is no such thing as a soulmate. Did you know that? You won't find it in scripture. You will find that God brings you together and marriage hones and shapes you into the people that God intends you to be. But there's one soulmate for you, and that's the Holy Spirit. We tend to frame it in in the weirdest of terms. For people who aren't sure about marriage, even Christian young couples, they live together, and they frame it in terms of, well, I really want to test it before I buy it. Marriage is not something you're supposed to test before you buy it. You test after you've bought it. So by taking matters into their own hands, they sought to bring a solution to their angst, and in the process created all the more angst. And whenever we put faith on the back burner and apply self-effort, we are effectively saying, God, I've got it. I don't need you. I'm going to remove you from the equation. And we create the context for chaos, and that's what happens here. So it's rooted in expediency. The second thing I discover in their action is rooted in selfishness. Now, at first glance, it appears that Sarai is being really selfish or selfless and sacrificial. She seemed concerned to fulfill the promise to her husband, and she seemed selfless in sharing her husband with another. But there's two clues here that help us understand. Her primary motivator was that she was self-absorbed. In the ancient Near East, I told you before, women were considered disgraced if they didn't bear children. A woman who did not conceive conceive had their identity uh, questioned. And I can imagine for Sarah that her life had been filled with shame because she would not given Abram any children even though she was old. But there's a clue here, there's this mixed motive, that she is being self-absorbed. In verse 2 it says, Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Interesting phrase that's here, that I shall obtain children by her. Because the custom of the day was, and remember, all the ancient law codes said it was really normal for a wife who couldn't bear children for her husband to give a servant, and then the children of that servant would become hers. So she was following uh, cultural customs. But what's interesting here in this phrase, I shall obtain children by her, the wording suggests that there's more at play. Literally, I shall obtain children by her reads this way. Then I'll finally be built up. The emphasis is on Sarah's esteem and her social status and her personal gain. And in honesty, she has mixed motives at best. She's self-absorbed, as she, and that's what lies beneath her motive to her action. And who can blame her, right? That'd be tough. But make no mistake, her determination to short-circuit her faith had more to do with who she was and how she felt than it did with God and the determination to live sacrificially. Isn't that the case with us? Our motives are all over the place. Mixed motives regularly fuel our lives and our actions. And so, my friends, we do well to test our motives before we move into action. I'm not saying don't move into action, but test your motives. Why do you really feel compelled to act? There's another thing I notice here that says that she was self-absorbed, and it's uh, that Sarah and Abram's actions were at the expense of another. If you read the passage, you discover that Hagar becomes a means to an end. She was simply an object to be used. Throughout the passage, Abram and Sarai never, not even once, referred to Hagar as a person. They called her the servant. They objectify her, they put a label on her, and in the process, they depersonalize her because then they can do whatever they want with her to accomplish what they want to have done. It's true, it followed the social conventions of the day, but in the process, they used another to obtain their goal. There's no consideration of the implications for Hagar or for Ishmael down the road. There's no consideration of her life or her value as a person. She was simply a commodity to be used. It's interesting that if you read the scripture, Moses, who wrote, who wrote uh, Genesis, names her several times, Hagar, Hagar, Hagar. What's even more interesting is that when the angel of the Lord visits her, he doesn't say Hey, servant of Sarai, that's not his his first foray. His first foray is to call her Hagar. He names her. Sarai and Abram treat her like chattel. She's nothing more than a commodity. She wasn't a person to be valued. She was someone to be used to achieve their goal. And that actually becomes a good benchmark for us as we step out and try to live out our faith. It's easy for us to objectify others to get what we want. To disregard the fallout of our actions uh, in the lives of the people around them. To pretend that everything's okay when we use and abuse others to accomplish spiritual goals. Spiritual goals. To pretend that our actions... to, To explain our actions away as if somehow the end justifies the means. But when we're tempted to act as we live out our faith, we do well to consider the implications to those around us, to put others first and allow God to champion our cause. Remember, that's a biblical principle. Regardless of how we feel or we think, to apply faith to the situation of our lives, living in God's truth rather than the reason of the moment and getting what we want, no matter what our motives are or what the fallout is. There's a third thing I discovered here is that our action caused relational strife, massive relational strife, Look at verse 3 and 4. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai Abram's wife took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram uh, as her uh, her husband as a, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she that is Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked on contempt with her, mis- at her mistress, and Sarai said to Abram, Sarai said to Abram, "What Wrong, sorry, may the wrong that you've done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, another putz moment, behold, your servant's in your powers. Do with her as you please. And then Sarai dealt with her harshly, and she fled. It's a famous quote by Alexander Pope that says, To err is human. And one commentator then continued on to say this, that's true, to err is human, but to really screw things up is a human specialty. You discover here, and it's often true in the situations of our lives, that short-circuiting faith leads to a short-circuiting of relationships. Abram abdicates responsibility and gives in to Sarai. Literally, it says he obeyed her voice. Abram takes Hagar to bed and short circuits faith. He moves outside of God's plan. Uh, Sarai blames Abram and calls on God to judge between them. This is false spirituality, right? I've really screwed up. Let's get God to judge which one of us screwed up more. Eh. Sarai abuses Hagar mercilessly to the point where it's better to run away to, into the desert than it is to stay home. By the, the word here is, is cruel, harsh treatment. The same word used of the Egyptians when they, when they had the uh, Israelites in slavery. I think it actually sounds like an episode of Big Brother or Days of Our Lives. not that I've ever watched either of those. What's meant to solve a problem creates a multitude of others. It leads to a diminishing of intimacy, broken relationship, and a lack of trust. And isn't that the way of sin? We're tempted to do things on our own. Sin makes these great promises. If you simply short-circuit your faith, here's what you'll get. But it never tells us about the drawbacks or the consequences. It's kind of like an infomercial for a new drug. Have you ever seen those? Some new drug? 30-second infomercial? you get two minutes or two seconds of all the things it'll do, and then 28 seconds of all the side effects. Right? But it's always sort of in the background while music is playing, and you can't really see it or read it or whatever. And it kind of goes like this. Uh, it includes death, diarrhea, vomiting, heart attack, and hemorrhoids. And it's, right? You ever, they never tell you about the hemorrhoids. <laughs> the difference between an infomercial and sin is sin never ever tells you about the side effects. But the side effects are real and rampant. Hagar has false pride, Sarah has false blame, and Abram has failure to lead in a false neutrality, and ultimately results in unhappiness, discord, and strife. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me read, lead to my third point, and we'll, we'll close with this. But you don't have to short-circuit faith if you understand this third point. That faith is a conviction that God ultimately knows. (coughs) Excuse me. Verses 7 through 15. The foundation for our faithfulness is that God ultimately knows. And there's a number of, of truths about the character and the nature and the person of God that... Uh, are written here so we might understand what true faith can look like in the context, even of a diversity. Here's the first thing I discover: that God knows us intimately. Look at the verses 7 through 9. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by the spring of the water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. I you understand what's happening here is that the angel of the Lord, some people think of pre-incarnate Christ, and later on we find out it is a, a theophany. It's God who is engaging Hagar here. That he calls Hagar by name. That he calls a foreign, lost, and rebellious slave woman by name. It's the only incident in any ancient Near Eastern narrative where a deity addresses a woman by name. (coughs) Excuse me. If God knows the name of a wayward slave, someone who's outside of the family of faith, do you think it's possible that he knows yours? If you ever doubt that God knows you intimately and personally, Hagar is here to tell you, no, no, he does. Here's the second thing I discover in all of this about the character of God, that he recounts her circumstances. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, he doesn't discredit all that she's been through. He knows all too well the challenges of her life. She's a servant of Sarai, and Sarai has not treated her well. He's exceedingly aware of the chaos she's experienced and the difficulty she's known. See, God is not a God who does not understand. He understands fully all of the details of our lives. And if God knows the circumstances of Hagar, he knows your situation and my situation too. If you ever doubt if God understands the trouble you're going through or the circumstances you're in or the dilemma you're struggling with, Hagar is proof that he does. third thing I discovered he's intimately acquainted with every detail of her life and he calls her back into relationship there's this phrase here where have you come from and where are you going it's a rhetorical question it's meant to cause Hagar to pause and evaluate see her life is going nowhere she is in the middle of the wilderness she's in desert uh, near a well near shore shore is kind of like Uh, the nowhere land between Israel and Egypt. She's heading back home. She's heading back to what she knows. And the angel of the Lord has zoomed in on her. She's fleeing. and, And the angel says to her, Where have you come from? Where are you going? He invites her to evaluate where she's heading. See, here's the thing. The intimate directions of our lives... Are no less known by God. He invites us to ask the question, Where have I come from and where am I going? It's a question of relationship or orientation. Sarah's answer is, is incomplete I'm fleeing. I don't know. I don't know. And God calls her to stop running and to return. And in effect, He invites us to do the same. If you're running from God, stop it. And I want you to note the command of the the angel. Hagar, servant of the Lord, sorry, uh, he said to Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? The command is to return and submit, and it should cause us to pause. Because what the angel is calling Sarai to do is to return to the crucible of faith. See, sometimes God calls us to persevere even in difficult situations because his purposes and his plans are are so much more lofty than we understand. Sometimes God calls us to be like June and to get on our knees for 40 years to pray for a husband where there is no hope. Return and submit. See, God invites us to trust him, even in the face of adversity. And here's why. I'll close with this. That God hears our cry. Here's our choir. This says this in verse 11. "The angel of the Lord said to her, "Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call His name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction." Did you catch that? Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. This is profound spiritual truth that God listens to us even or especially when it's hard. He's listened in your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. He hears. He listens. He's been heard. And it's a fantastic, perfect tense verb. Isn't that the best? Because here's the implication. It means that he's listened in the past. He's always known. He's always heard. And because he knows and he hears and he understands, it applies to our present situation and our future as well. It literally means that He's heard us completely, and we lack nothing. And the idea is simply this, that God hears our heart cry in our desperation. In a difficult marriage, God understands and calls you to persevere. When we long for a loved one to come to Jesus, God understands, he hears, and he calls you to stay true. When we desire a family, God calls you to obey and stay true to the course of your calling. When we wrestle with singleness or with our identity, he calls us to trust in him and find our identity in him. And we often say, God doesn't listen, he doesn't hear me. No, that's not true. He does he does in a perfect and a complete way but what he does do is call you to be obedient in the seeming silence second thing is this that god sees us in our humble estate verse 13 she called on the name of the lord who spoke to her and said you are a god of seeing for she said truly i have seen him who looks on me and after uh, therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Again, this is amazing. It's only Hagar in all of Scripture who gives a name to God. El Roy means the God who sees me. And again, it's in the perfect tense. The God who has seen me in the past, who sees me in the present, who also knows my future. He sees everything. The God who sees me completely, who sees me wholly, and who sees me fully, that nothing is hidden from him in relationship to us. And what's interesting is that Hagar finds hope, not in the promises of God, which, by the way, aren't that great to her. Right? Your, husband's, your son is going to be like a guy who came from Surrey. You know, that's not so good. But he believes in the character of God. She finds strength knowing that God knows her, that God hears her, that God sees her, and she puts her faith in the person of God And she returns back. Truly, I have seen him who looked after me. This is a wonderful wordplay in the Hebrew. The phrase can mean the God who sees me, which it does, but it can also mean the God I see. And the idea is this that it reflects two sides of the coin of faith. That we will only see God when we put our trust in him and his character. That's when we are able to see him move and, and see him revealed. When we do it on our own, we've removed God from the equation. And in the process of a God who knows us, who hears us, and who sees every situation we're in, we're called to return and submit, to find our fulfillment in God Himself, and allow Him to work through the circumstances that we struggle with as we wait. I don't know about you, but I find that hard. But it is the marker of true faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word that is true. Thank you for your provision, that you know us intimately. You know our circumstances, you know where we are, and you invite us back into relationship. Thank you, Lord, that you hear our cry. And thank you, Lord, that you see us completely. And when we trust in you, you allow us to see you as well. So, Lord, as we work out our faith and we wait on you, would you find us faithful? Would you hear our cries? Would you move in ways that allow us to know all the more of your power and your provision and your faithfulness? Because you are faithful, Jesus, and we thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.